As I leave the Hakatere Conservation Park, the track becomes a gravel road, long and quiet except for birds cruising in and out of the path. A few cars come by and stop for me, and I tell them I seem to have run low on food, and might they have some I can buy from them. Both couples are headed out for a weekend's tramp, so have nothing to spare. We wish each other well, and I continue on, and I wonder if they're describing me as a fool out hiking without proper supplies. Should I have saved face and not asked? Good heavens, no! What they think of me is none of my business, and it never hurts to ask. As I come to Castle Ridge Station, another name for ranch, the postman waves as he drives by. Up ahead, an older man appears to be picking up that delivered mail. He's friendly and has one of those warm smiles that make you want to keep doing things to make him smile. We share pleasantries, and he tells me he owns the station, all 17,000 acres, along with his son, whose house I just passed. I explain to him that I'm a little bit short on food for the coming days, and of course this lovely man invites me up to his house to get me stocked up. Peter and Mary, or as the mailbox reads, Ma and Pa Harmer, fill my arms with cans of fish, fresh fruit, crackers, and a bag of chips that aren't going to last very long. Peter tells me that his kids thought he and Ma should move to town. Instead, they built a dream house on a hill, looking out at this enchanted wonderland every single day. When I tell him about finishing the Teararoa and not being sure what's next for me except to rest, he tells me about mustering sheep in this high country and how exhausting it is. But then it doesn't take long before he wants to head right back out. He then offers me his address to write him when I'm finished. Such kindness and generosity. I'm absolutely humbled by this country and its people. You're listening to The P-Rag, Unfiltered Adventures of the Blissful Hiker. I'm Allison Young, the Blissful Hiker, sometime professional flutist, sometime voice artist, and full-time pedestrian. Like the small backpacking essential of the same name, the P-Rag shares the unglamorous but vital truth about empowerment as badass people who really don't need permission to blaze our own trails in this journey we call life. Thanks to Lecky Trekking Poles for supporting the P-Rag podcast. If you want to be a blissful hiker, Lecky should be in your hands. Also, Belega, makers of the best blister-resist, non-slouching, foot-massaging socks for the long haul. The wild wind blew open the door of the hut, even after we placed a rock to hold it shut. I love the rattling sound, though, the gusts sending shivers through the tiny structure. I met Tomasz from the Czech Republic many weeks ago on the Teeradoa as a large group of us went up and over Wyo Pass on a gusty and sleet-filled day. Most of us dispersed, and then I traveled with Tom and Alessio, then just Tom. We met at the top of a saddle high above the braided and uncrossable Rakaia River. And I'm glad he's here, because in two days there's another uncrossable monster of river, slightly less so, and with a tall man like him, I think we're going to cross it. But for now, we have nearly 40 miles ahead of us, 
with today a walk up a river and over a high saddle. Tom is still asleep at the A-frame hut. He manages to sleep through anything, though I think he closed the window sometime in the middle of the night. Our little perch here feels like something out of Lord of the Rings. The landscape is enchanted, the sky pink above the mountains. Even the loo has a view. My planning was way off, and I don't have quite enough food. I never expected to get that ride from Neil and Kate around the Rakaia River, but here I am. Tom says he brought too much, so he's offered to share, but for now I'm just going to drink more and try to keep myself full. I leave him a note to meet at Manuka Hut, and then I'm off, walking along an old jeep track of some sort. It winds along tussock, bright yellow flowers, and shattered landscape of rock and erosion. It's easy walking except for wild wind trying to blow me off my feet. I read an article about a woman tramper in the 1950s who blazed the way for many New Zealand girls, mostly discouraged from hiking, and she describes how she managed the wind of the ridges of the Tararuas by sort of floating on it. I give it a shot, and I find, yeah, I can use less muscle to stay upright. Soon I reach the ramshackle commons hut, corrugated metal wrapping a tiny box like Christmas paper. I'm surprised that Tom hasn't quite caught up with me yet, as I cross a stream realizing this is the stream I'll walk up to get over the saddle at nearly 3,000 feet. The sky is gray and the wind whips at my pack, and I suddenly feel anxious heading up into this water trail. There's no obvious path, and the orange poles are often placed in such a way they confirm your path choice rather than suggest it. I've crossed many streams already today, and my sneakers are squishy, but this one will be for many kilometers. I look behind me, but no one's there. So I take a deep breath, and I begin heading up. The water is cold, but it's not deep. The current rushes and pulls as the wind contributes, blowing hard in the same direction. I cross over to a rocky shore and step up to a grassy bank with a few thorn bushes scratching my ankles. Three heart-shaped stones greet me as a brown lizard with a black stripe down his back sneaks past. Across the stream is a bent orange pole, so I look for a good place to set my feet and enter again, trying to stay solid on rocks. This time I cross to a bank of bigger rocks and simply push upstream in more placid water. I'm faked out, though, by a path going up and over that turns out to take me thick into thorn, so I backtrack and decide to take advantage of any reasonably shallow water I can find. It doesn't always work, as large boulders with water gushing over stop my progress. But eventually I find the next orange pole and switch sides, perhaps 50 times doing that in a kind of river slalom. The sun comes out in full now and lightens my mood. It's slow going, but I have the hang of it, sensing when to cross before I look for the pole, sky filled with lenticular clouds billowing in waves. As I get closer to the saddle, I begin to see nobos or northbound hikers who offer good advice when I ask about the big river coming up in two days. If there's no rain, they tell me I should be fine. To which the sky replies by going dark and spitting out rain, 
not heavy, but a steady drizzle all the way up the saddle in deep grass up to my elbows. The grass hides the trail and the trail markers, but it also hides a stream running underneath hummocky dirt. I use my poles to lift it back before stepping forward, but I still manage to fall directly into a hole, thankfully not hurting myself. The drizzle continues, mildly unpleasant, obscuring a view and making me move faster. At the top of Clint Hill's saddle are two chairs ostensibly for hanging out in this beautiful place. <laughs> well, I simply press on to a confusing bit that is not well marked at all. Just when I want to go down off the saddle, I need to stay high and I cross several massive scree slopes. It's not difficult, but in the rain it feels exposed and airy. The trail continues high as a huge valley opens beside me with a stream far below, clearly the wrong way. Rocks give way to tussock, this time grass as high as me, and covering most of the orange-topped poles. The going is slow as I hunt around for my direction and try to smash down the grass and not fall into any more holes. I take one wrong turn and I see the pole after the fact, just as Tom catches me. He is moving slower due to a painful ankle, and I hope he manages the coming days. Just as I think that thought, the sky begins to clear and the sun comes out. We both take our raincoats off at the top of the final high point, looking down on a lake and mountains with mysteriously low cloud dancing above. It's as if Lake Heron Basin is being gently tapped with a fingertip. It's more tussock negotiation down, plus the land of massive jabby things, spear grass taller now than Tom. At the junction, he makes me a peanut butter wrap, and we sit in sunshine, admiring our splendid view and drying our clothes. That's until the wind picks up, a lot of wind. It comes howling down the valley that we'll need to walk to to get to the hut. I begin to shiver, so I head off, passing a couple of lakes and marveling at this odd cloud pressed down. The wind is not gusty, but it's straight line, taking my breath away and pushing on me as I walk my final five kilometers of the day. I'm struggling, but I still snap pictures, feeling wonderful because of all I experienced today. Hot sun, cold rain, feverish wind, magical views, a stream as trail, and sometimes only a suggestion of trail. I feel proud of my courage moving forward, even when I felt very alone and vulnerable. I should also mention now that so many hikers skip this section because it's awkward to get to between those two big rivers. But many people suggested not to miss this, and they were absolutely right. Today turned out to be one of the most special of all, simply because of its variety, its challenge, and its sparkling, lonesome beauty. It's days like today that make me remember why I decided to walk this long trail. Because I wanted to feel alive. You're listening to The P-Rag, Unfiltered Adventures of the Blissful Hiker. Through sharing my stories of walking long-distance trails as a solo middle-aged female hiker, I hope I can empower you to learn to hike your own hike, too. 
You can subscribe to the PRAG wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're on Apple, please leave a review because that does help other people find the podcast. It's cozy on my bunk in the old Manuka hut, and the sky begins to lighten. I'm up first, as always, heading to the long drop on a cold, crisp, clear, and still morning. I do worry that Tom will have too much pain in his swollen ankle. Not an injury, really, rather overuse. And he's going to need time to rest, or worse, he won't rest and then have real problems. I leave a note that says I'll meet him at the road and to take his time, and I know I'm going to take my time. And it's easy tramping at first. And it gives me that kind of breathing room of not having to look at each step that allows me to mull over my life. I tend to use these moments to argue with someone who's not here, to come up with just the right rejoinder and close all arguments in my favor. For the past several days, I've had almost precisely an identical conversation, anticipating bad news when I return home. I stop myself, mainly sick of going around and around in circles, but it also occurs to me that I don't need to choose bad news, especially before it happens. I don't have to be the victim of this story I tell. I can instead be the champion. Just then the trail cuts off and heads straight up to a saddle through thorns and grass above my head. Spread below me is a tarn, which I know only because the map says it's there. At the moment, tiny Lake Emily is shrouded in low mist, ethereal and floating just above her. Shorebirds of all kinds, ryebill, banded dotterel, black-fronted tern, as well as ducks and swans, honk and hoot in the fog. I'm invited to walk in under a kind of arch. Is it a sundog in reverse? It's like a rainbow that's just white. And in I go, and the families of birds floating about on this heavenly morning are revealed. Sheep dot the rolling foothills surrounding the 4x4 track I'm walking. I then think of other ways I could change the story I tell myself, and I remember how it felt to play the flute at the level of skill I used to possess. I didn't always trust my instincts and would force myself to play as I was instructed, even if it felt wrong. Like when playing the opening of Debussy's Afternoon of a Fawn in one breath... I mean, I managed it barely, but it never felt like me. All these years later, I wish I'd ignored everyone else and taken two breaths in the middle of the solo. I mean, it makes sense musically, and I would have been free to make music rather than simply show off a technique. I'd give anything right now to play like I used to. My pack is full after the visit to Ma and Pa Harmer. I eat the chips as I walk, and soon meet the path that's off the road, but no sign of Tom. I set myself to wait for him in the shade of a sign, and nod off for five minutes, and then decide I'm going to leave a note for him again, in stones, and keep moving. The trail heads up a grassy plateau where I can see Peter's house far in the distance. Clouds make fanciful shadows on the dun-colored mountains. I come to a beautiful brook, banked with brilliant yellow flowers. Four Japanese trampers, fancifully dressed and covered head to toe like me, are relaxing here. We share a few words and mostly sign language, 
and I just have to take their photo saying, smile, say Mount Fuji. <laughs> I thank them in the only Japanese word I know because I heard it said over and over again on the train in Tokyo years ago. Arigato gozaimashita. They all laugh and thank me back saying, nice day, nice day. And just in time, Tom arrives, and I give him half the fruit that Pa Harmer gave me. Like me, he also longs for fresh fruit and his stuffed tomatoes and onions in his pack, plus apples that he picked off a tree at the beginning of this section. Tom, or Tomash, is 24 and very tall. He speaks a bit like Lurch with a low monotone. Kind of like Serge, who hiked with me for six days in France, I wonder why this cross-generational relationship works. Perhaps he wants to go slower, and if he helps out a middle-aged lady, he has an excuse. After Tikapo, he's finished with the South Island and will head to Wellington to hike the North Island. But these days we've shared have been so good for me. It's funny, we actually don't talk much, likely because his English is excellent but not sufficient for deeper conversations. But it might also be because he's so young and we don't have a lot to say to each other. But that suits me just fine, as we are together when it matters, like tomorrow crossing the Rangatata, another river that the TA calls a hazard zone. Crossing it is doable, but will take a long time and needs to be done in perfect conditions of low flow and no rain. And that's exactly what we have right now. Tom's ankle is better since he rested, sleeping in until 8 o'clock, and he wants to push all the way to the car park today, which does make for a long day, but is a much better place to get a jump on the river cross. But he's also interested in adding something to the river cross, climbing a small peak that's nearby that was used in the Lord of the Rings. Tom suggests that we save the crackers and salmon that Pa Harmer gave me to celebrate crossing the river. Well, he's certainly optimistic. I walk on over another saddle, which reveals a chain of jagged, snow-capped mountains twice or three times the size of the Grand Tetons. A deep blue lake rests below, and its tiny village is tucked into the vast expanse of tussocky grassland. A couple is riding up the trail on mountain bikes, asking me the highlights of the Teororoa so far. Oh my, there have been so many. The wind rushes through the red-gold grass, making a whistling sound, and the orange trail pole flutes as I approach, almost like a scene from the afternoon of a fawn. Soft tundra plants massage my steps. I pass blue tarns with electric green grass on the edges. The feeling of this place is awesome in the truest sense of the word. It's huge, powerful, menacing, ageless, and dumb. But somehow it's full of story and meaning. I feel tiny in the expanse. The trail works its way past a farm and down steep chalky cliffs onto the Potts River Terrace as it heads over rocks and boulders dragged here in flood, emptying finally into the mighty Rangatata a complex system of braided waterways and more boulder-strewn islands and terraces. There's shade without bugs at the car park, and the alley coop is up quickly, my view into the mountains I'll walk on tomorrow. I do stretches on the bridge while the sun plays hide-and-seek with the clouds resting on the summits. 
and I look out at the Rangatata River, nearly six miles of riverbed to cross. Corey Tenboom says, Worrying is carrying tomorrow's load with today's strength, carrying two days at once. It is moving into tomorrow ahead of time. Worrying doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. I eat a big dinner now, having almost too much food for the remaining four days' walk to Lake Tikapo. In one of the most beautiful places on Earth, I worried about my fate when I get home. I worried about how I missed an opportunity to play my flute like I really wanted to, rather than how I was told to. I worried I'd run out of food, and I worried Tom's ankle would keep us from crossing the Rangatata, stretching shimmering under the setting sun. It did me no good, and simply took the energy I had to be in this now and placed it elsewhere. I smile, grateful for the harmers and for Tom, and for taking the chance and the risk of whatever happens when I get home to fulfill this dream in the way I want to, before it's too late and I can't. I suddenly realize I've passed the 2,300-kilometer mark. Boy, I've come so far. We're in a car park, but no one comes, neither car or tramper. So I nestle in for what I know will be a great sleep on flat ground, under a chilly night of stars. Thanks so much for listening to the PRAG podcast. You can rate and review us at Apple Podcasts, and you can find out more about my long walks, including on the Te Araroa in New Zealand, as well as the PCT and other trails around the world. It's at theprag.com. And that music you're hearing is me playing my flute from Better Days. It's available on iTunes. Next week, we do cross the Rangatata, and successfully. It is an incredible experience, maybe one of the most incredible of all of my trekking. Until then, my friends, kia kaha, and happy trails. <laughs> <laughs>